Good morning, everybody, and welcome. So, what should we talk about? We have some questions. Better than questions, we have Pam and Kim right now. Yes. Can you talk a little more about the five aggregates? Certainly. And I was planning to talk about them more next Thursday as well, so this will be a warm-up for that. (laughs) Yes, the basic idea here is that uh, we can account for the entirety of what we regard ourselves as an individual uh, in terms of what are called the the five aggregates. And so uh, it's it's a way of the the purpose it has is it's a way of examining the nature of, of who and what we are and to uh, be able to get a clear grasp of of that. And uh, the reason that we want to do that is having been told that the self that we believe we are uh, as a a permanent and abiding uh, substantial self that needs to be uh, uh, cherished and, and protected Uh, that this really doesn't exist in the way that we believe it does and that it's our attachment to that existence uh, uh, it's attachment to the belief that it it does exist and is real that is at the root of all of our problems and so its purpose is to help us satisfy ourselves intellectually through reflection that Indeed, the only self that we are consists in the, uh, the these five aggregates, the, the, uh, and that there is no, there is nothing about ourselves that is outside of and not included in that. So that's its purpose. And of the five aggregates, one of them. The one that we usually mention first is um, called form, or well, the Pali word is rupa, and form is a pretty good translation for it. But in general, uh, what is taken to mean form is everything that is due to the material and the physical. So, in terms of each of us as an individual, of course, it is that form that aggregate of form that accounts for the physical body we experience. The other four are all mental in nature. And they are, uh, just to review them, they are feeling, meaning feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither, uh, or neutral, uh, are perceptions 
our mental formations, and the mental formations are all of our thoughts and ideas and our concepts, our memories, uh, and all of our inclinations to behavior that are imprinted in our brain and our mind, uh, so uh, and our emotions. So uh, that's the mental formations. And then the fifth one, the last one, is is consciousness. So of these four that are mental, in order to uh, to understand them and to uh, discuss them meaningfully, of course, the first question is why why are they separated? They're all mental. And what is it that distinguishes them? Why have they been separated out in this way? Uh, so let's look at let's look at the aggregate of mental formations first, and see why feelings and perceptions and consciousness are not lumped together with those. Why they have been separated out. So, as I said, all of your, all the concepts that you have in your mind are part of this aggregate. And within your mind, there, there is, is stored um, value judgments about those concepts, which are automatically brought up whenever the, whenever something triggers a concept to come into your mind, that it comes carrying with it uh, value judgments. These value judgments, in turn, are rooted in past experience, of which some of which you have conscious episodic memory, and you can remember the past experiences that caused you, your mind to attribute certain values to a concept or an idea. Uh, sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's the cumulative result of, of hundreds or thousands or perhaps even millions of different experiences that have all contributed to it. But when you have a sensory experience and you recognize the source of that sensory experience as a particular object, as a particular thing, a person, then that recognition, when it comes into consciousness, comes with all of that other stuff. All of the values and invisibly linked to it are all the previous experiences that you have that uh, caused you to form that particular concept in that particular way and attach the particular attributes to it that you have. Do you see how that works? Could you give an example? Yes. Well, yes, uh, that's that's a good idea. Let's look at an example. Let's, let's take let's take something fairly simple. Uh, well, like for example, a bicycle. You see a bicycle, and now bicycle is a concept. <coughs> So when, when you see this object, what immediately arises in your mind is, is this label, bicycle, 
and all of the stuff that comes with it. Bicycles uh, can be used in particular ways, you know, to get around. And you may either like or not like bicycles because of your previous experiences with them. Uh, you may love bicycles and think they're wonderful. Uh, because you have a lot of interest and attachment in bicycles, you may immediately examine this bicycle and, and, and say, oh, it's got, a, it's got a blah, blah, blah brake system. Those are fantastic. I really <laughs> like those. But the seat is, oh, it's not as bad. I know there's better seats than that. You know, you know what I mean? The sort of thing that we do. Or it could be completely different. You could, be, you could care less about bicycles. And you look at it, and about all that comes into your mind is, oh, that's one of those things that people call a bicycle. And I'm not interested in those. You hardly notice anything about it. So each sensory experience you have, you know, it, it, it seems to us so simple. Like, oh, yeah, that's a bicycle. But the five aggregates are an invitation to understand a little more deeply what's happening. You, this is where the perception comes in. The way that you perceive that object, that, that sense experience, the way that you perceive it as a bicycle, and elaborated in this way. That is your perception. So we, every perception, every person's perception of the same object is going to be different because every person has a different collection of mental formations that that sensory experience is going to call up. And then another part of the mental formations, of course, is what we've been talking about so far is is sort of the uh, it's it's the passive observing. Oh, there's a bicycle. This is what I think about the bicycle, or whatever the object happens to be. But then comes the actor, the intentional. Now, this this is the mental formation that will cause an act. Of, uh, uh, a, a thought, word, or, or deed. It will bring about an action. So, you know, you could see the bicycle and say, oh, that's mine, what it's doing, what's it doing there, and go over and get it and move it, or any other kind of physical action. It could lead you to speak and make a comment of some particular kind. Or it could only cause you to have certain sorts of uh, thoughts, you know, in, in other words, generate more mental formations which you experience as thoughts. Um, these are going to be tinged with uh, so the, uh, all actions uh, have some kind of purpose, and so they'll be tinged with some kind of desire and aversion. If it was your bicycle and it's not where it's supposed to be, you know, there's some. Uh, desire to protect that which is yours and some aversion to what might possibly happen to this beloved bicycle of yours. <laughs> oh yeah, right, yeah, if, if it's left there. So you see, behind the action is the arising of desire and aversion. And these are a very fundamental kind of uh, mental formation. So when we speak of mental formations, you see, all of this, all of this stuff are, are the mental formation. So by far, it is the largest and most complex aggregate. And 
the mental formations have been built up and accumulated uh, throughout your life. And every new experience you have modifies the collective whole of your mental formations. And that is going to influence the kind of experience you have in the future, right? Does that, is everybody follow that and see? So, so no matter what happens to you, every single experiential event that you have, how you experience it is going to be dependent upon those mental formations. And then whatever happens in this new experience will just be added to the collective whole. Now, in each experience that you do have, two other aggregates are inevitably present. Um, you know, the, the root of the experience will be the experience of the form aggregates, which will be the sensations, what you see, hear, feel, and so forth. Associated with them will be the feeling aggregate. In response to that, you'll feel either, you'll have a feeling of either pleasantness or unpleasantness, or else you may just have a neutral feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant in response to those sensations that arise. Then, you will have a perception. You, what, Whatever the sensory experience is, you'll perceive it in a particular way. As a matter of fact, in, in that moment, you will have a piece of your ongoing reality is going to unfold. You know, you open your eyes and you see the bicycle and this is a piece of reality. Your perception is totally dependent upon your mental formations. And everybody's mental formations are different, so everybody's perception is somewhat different. As long as everybody who sees the bicycle has experienced bicycles before, there's going to be certain similarities in the mental formations that we've acquired, and therefore certain similarities in our perception. But if one of us had never ever seen a bicycle before, they'll be having a quite different perception. They'll have they'll have none of none of the ideas that the rest of us do about this thing. But then to the degree that each of our previous experiences has been different, well, that's that's the degree to which our perception will be different. Now, seeing a bicycle will probably be uh, well, the, the seeing part, the simple visual registration of a bicycle um, will probably have a, ne- a, a neutral feeling tone in most cases. Although it could just be a gorgeously colored and, and shaped bicycle so that that uh, somehow the, the colors are inherently pleasing and there's a little bit of pleasure associated with that. Or it may be some garishly painted or some ugly rusty bicycle or things like that. And so the visual impact itself may have some subtle unpleasantness to it. But you know, basically most visual experiences are pretty neutral. You know, if it's pleasantly colored or if it's unpleasantly colored, this is going to be pretty minimal. But as soon as we recognize it and we put the label bicycle on it and that label is attached with all of our past experience, then we might have a very strong 
feeling of pleasure, oh, I love bicycles, or unpleasant for whatever reason. You see what I mean? No? Okay. Well, um, the actual physical taste of water is not especially different, uh, as, as a, particularly the you know the same the same water. It's always going to be the actual physical taste is always going to be pretty much the same. But if you were really thirsty, the whatever pleasantness is associated with the actual physical taste of water is one thing. But if you drink it when you're really thirsty, it tastes wonderful. That's your that's your mental response. So there's two different things. There's the pleasantness associated with the actual physical taste, and then there's the mental pleasantness that's experienced because it it, it makes you so happy to have a drink of water because you're thirsty and you've been wanting it and you've been desiring water. And on the other hand, uh, if you're not really thirsty at all and I forced you to take a drink of water, uh, it might be just the opposite. Okay. If you, the actual act of seeing a bicycle or a person or a rock or anything else, the visual sensory process itself will have one feeling tone. It may be strong, it may be weak, or it may be neutral. Yeah, but uh, it'll, it'll have a feeling tone that is pretty much consistent from one time to another. And, but we will have a much stronger feel. We will always tend to have a much stronger feeling that follows that. That can be the same or the opposite due to whatever mental associations that we have. So in each experience, we have each experience is flavored by or colored by feelings of pleasant and unpleasant. And some of these feelings arise in the sensory experience themselves, and some of these feelings arise in the mind. Someone you like strokes your arm, and not only is the stroking pleasant, but the idea that it's your beloved friend that's doing it, and they both make you feel good, so it's good plus good. But as somebody you don't like comes up and strokes your arm, that may still feel, the stroking may still feel good, but because it's this person that you don't like and you can't stand the idea that they're touching you. It's good followed by bad, right? So every experience you have has feeling. And we can distinguish clearly the feeling that arises from the physical and the feeling that is associated with the mental. So we have our perceptions. And our perceptions can be different at different times, too. One part of your mental formations, uh, it, it's uh, one aspect of your mental formations is what we call your mood. Okay, and so if at the time you have a particular experience, you're in a happy mood, then the perception that you have may be different than another time if you were in an unhappy mood or if you were angry or something like that. Um, 
if uh, if we just had a big argument and then I, I saw you and you did something, uh, I might perceive that action in a completely different way than I would have before we had the argument, right? You know what I mean? Okay. So what I'm seeing and experiencing, my perceptions, there's really, they, they are really strongly determined by my mental formations. And the state of my mental formations is constantly shifting, depending on what else is happening. The last aggregate is consciousness. And we are invited to examine consciousness. Um, and we'll see that the consciousness appears in six different kinds according to the senses that the object of consciousness uh, is uh, known by. So we have visual consciousness, and we have auditory consciousness, and tactile consciousness, and olfactory and gustatory consciousness. And we also have the consciousness of our emotions and our thoughts and things like that, which is mental. So the six kinds of consciousness. When you examine your experience, you know, and you might be very justified in saying, okay, well, why say there's six kinds of consciousness? Why not just say there's one kind of consciousness? Because when you examine your experience, you'll find that you can't find consciousness separate from an object. There's always an object of consciousness. And if you look at the objects of consciousness, you'll find that the objects of consciousness always correspond to one of the five senses, five physical senses, or something that's known directly to the mind. And so, uh, to accurately describe this aggregate of consciousnesses, we, we have to recognize that there's six types of, of consciousness. So we have six types of consciousness. We have five types of feeling, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. And the pleasant and unpleasant can either be physical or mental in origin. When we go to the uh, rupa, the, the uh, uh, form aggregate, we find that initially, well, what is there? There's my body, but then how do I know about my body? Well, my body is a perception that means that my body is uh, is a concept that's arising out of my mental formations as a result of my having certain sensations. You know, I, I see my body, I feel my body, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, I have sensations, and then there are perceptions that arise out of my previous experience, and so. I call what I see to feel my body. So then we say, well, okay, um, what is the aggregate of uh, a form then if it's not really my body because that's perceptions and that's mental formation? What, what the form aggregate really is uh, are the sensations themselves. So. If you examine what you are, 
and, and use these five aggregates as a tool for that, your entire existence has consisted of a series of experiences in an ongoing stream. And in every single one of those experiences, there has been some combination of these five constituents that has made it up. Right? Every Right now, you're having a stream of experiences. You're listening to me, and, and you're having an experience and of the meaning of the words, and you're thinking about that. Thoughts are arising, you're having experience with those thoughts. You look at something, you listen to something, uh, you look around the room, you know. What you're having is a series of experiences. Uh, whether you look at it at a gross level or whether you zoom in and look at it at a very fine level, it's still a series of experiences. And in every one of those experiences, uh, look to see, is there anything... Well, first look to see how that experience is indeed constituted by these five aggregates. There is consciousness of some object which is going to be, that consciousness of an object is going to be one of the six kinds, and the object is going to be one of the six kinds. One of five kinds of sensory, uh, physical sensory object, or it's going to be a mental object, right? So you're going to have consciousness of, of an object. You are going to experience that particular object, know that particular object, perceive that particular object, and in a particular way. That's your perception. That's the perception aggregate. And you can reflect and see that your perceptions, even of the same object, are not always the same. But your perceptions are always determined by the mental formations that are present. And not all you know, if not all of the totality of a lifetime's worth of uh, mental formations is necessarily active in each moment of experience. And so that determines how we experience things differently at different times. You can be reminded of something different and then experience the same object in a different way, right? And that's only because there's some of the mental formations that were stored there were not active, and then the reminding made them active, and then the perception shifted. And there's the experience of, of all of these different things as pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So once you satisfy yourself that indeed this ongoing stream of experiences that is you as an individual does, it can in fact be understood, analyzed in terms of these five aggregates, then the next question is, is there anything that's left out? Or do these five aggregates adequately encompass it all? So that is, that's the, that's the function of the five aggregates and the reason for understanding them is then to engage in this exercise of satisfying yourself that indeed what we call the individual, 
is nothing more than this five these five aggregates. Yes? I'm reminded of the quote I found this last week. I actually sent it to you to an also by Thomas Berry, in which he says that um, our stories about who we are and what we are has profoundly changed. And many, if not most people, perhaps in the world today, don't even realize that our story has changed, has changed because of, of the science, quantum physics, all the things you're speaking about. I can see that what you're saying is, is immensely helpful, is at the core of a meditation practice. Um, and at the same time, I'm feeling that the story about who I am and how I fit and the human and how humans interact and what our world really is is profoundly different from what it was when I was growing up and what I was taught in Sunday school and what I thought even a few years ago. Yeah. It's profoundly different. Um, before it was somehow, you know, without this breakout of who we are, these five aggregates and so on, um, I, I don't even have the words to, to try to reconstruct what this new story might be about who we are. I might be able to construct what it was. But there's a fragmentation that begins to be sensed um, for lack of a new story. Um, would you like to comment on that? For lack of a new story? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the new story is really important. But first of all, you, is, is that you have to... What, what is so important, though, is to learn to understand that indeed what you are is just your current story of the moment. Okay? And that that story is dependent upon, is causally dependent upon all your previous stories. But that, that is, when we say that you, that the individual consists of nothing more than the, the five aggregates. Then we look at what is the nature of the five aggregates. Look at it more carefully, and we discover that you know there is a story, and in every moment there is a story. But the story changes constantly. The story is not the same from moment to moment, but it is causally connected to the previous story, right? And that is profoundly different than the story we grew up with when things stayed more the same. We had sort of a godhead and human beings were at the top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. And that we, we had a, a, a kind of flow from birth to death, always towards a divine. That we didn't change moments to moments. This is profoundly different. Yes. Because, uh, well, the, the story was always changing, but this was the delusion that we always 
you know, that we we didn't recognize that it was a story. We thought it was it was reality, and, and that we thought there was some part of it that was unchanging and permanent. And so when, when you look, you try to find. That's the next thing. When, once you're satisfied that, that there's no permanent soul or self or something like that that has been left out of this that what you are are these five aggregates and you should look in them and try to find well what is there in here that is permanent and, and this is a very important thing to do obviously the form aggregate the sensations they're coming and going coming and going coming and going they are not constant you know there's nothing permanent about that the the feelings that are associated with that they come and go and change as well. Nothing permanent about that. Uh, our perceptions, we see how they constantly change. And of these, of these six types of consciousness, uh, first there's one, there's another, and the object of each, of course, the objects of these are, are in the realm of the, of the form aggregate. And they're constantly changing too. So let's look at this uh, aggregate of mental formation and say, what? Maybe that's where, maybe that's where the permanent part of it is. But we recognize that it's constantly changing. But we do see that this is where, this is where the thread of continuity is held. That we do it within that form aggregate is both our conscious recollections of past experiences and the non-conscious imprints of all of our past past experiences. So, so that's where we find that thread. But it's not. It's it, it's still a constantly changing story. It only has this this causal thread of continuity. That's where the future that's where the future stories come in though. When you realize what I am is my current story of the moment and that's constantly changing. And when I didn't know that, then uh, I was not exercising any deliberate or intentional or, or conscious influence on the way the story was was changing, but now that I know, uh, now that I know that it's a constantly changing story, and now that I know that the story of the moment is causally dependent upon the stories of the past, can I understand how that works well enough to? Influence the story of the future, or the stories of the future, and and that's really where virtue and karma come into it. The, the practice of virtue, love and kindness, compassion. In other words, if we look at those mental formations and their unfolding, we see. Okay, we have an experience, and it feels good or bad, and. Um, so if it's good, we want more of it. If it's bad, we want less of it. And uh, based on our mental formations, we 
attach an identity to what we think made us feel good or made us feel bad. And so what we what happens then is that, that collection of mental formations said, I am this and there is that which is producing these, this kind of feeling in me and I crave, I have a craving that it is appropriate for the kind of feeling it produces in me. So your mental formations have created your reality. You have a perception. I am seeing this, and I feel this way, and so therefore I want that. You come into being. Um, and as a result of those feelings, you are going to act. You may say something or do something. Well, even before you act, all the thoughts that you have. You have an experience of something, it produces pleasure, it generates desire. So now you dwell on that desire. And you, because of the presence of the desire, you re-experience the same object. And it's even more desirable than it was a moment ago. Oh, wow, so you desire it more. And so you re-experience it again. And so it gets more and more desirable. Uh, this series of experiences all by itself has made you more prone to desire and it's definitely going to have a really profound effect on how you experience that object or any similar object in the future. You have, you have laid the groundwork for your future stories there. And then you are going to perform some actions and of course actions have repercussions. Uh, Actions are experiences. As the actions unfold and as the experiences that constitute the actions unfold, more and more new imprints are added into this collection of mental formations. So you're, you're, you're writing your future stories and you're going to experience those future stories. There's no way around it. Okay, if you look at those mental formations and you see that you're you're writing the plot all based on, on uh, greed and, and hatred and all, all sorts of negative things, then you'll realize that all of the future stories are going to be based on these kind of plots and they're not going to be too much fun. So you can start, you can recognize that if you can, can uh, change the sorts of mental formations and intentions that you generate in the moment, you will change the future nature of the story that you create. Let's examine what this means. Of course, what this means is that we're modifying what we are in terms of this collection of aggregates that's making its way through the world. So, our future choices in all kinds of subtle ways that we're not aware of are going to be influenced by this, right? So wherever we happen to find ourselves in the future, in this place instead of that place, with this these people instead of that people, uh, in this kind of activity instead of that activity, wherever you, if we jump ahead to some future point in time, where you find yourself, if we go back and examine it, we'll see there were a whole lot of decisions points along the way that were subtly influenced by 
these things that happened in other present moments in the past. So the situation that you find yourself in at some future time has been determined by your past. And then, wherever you happen to be and whoever you happen to be with, there's going to be some certain inevitable consequences. What you have done to others is going to determine what they do unto you. Uh, What goes up must come down. If you've been throwing rocks in the air, one of them might hit you on the head, and so forth. So the things that happen to you in the future moment are going to depend also on this chain of previous circumstances. But then very particularly, the experience you have. Okay, you're in a particular place and certain things are happening and they were causally determined. But now you're having the experience. There are things impacting on your sense organs, so therefore consciousness is taking that as an object. Based on your mental formations, you're having a particular kind of a perception with particular feeling. In that moment, your mind does what it has done in every moment. It creates a reality. Bingo, the hurts come back, the lights come on. Here we are, this is now and this is reality. Depending on your mental formations, that reality is perceived in a particular way. Oh, this is great, oh, this is terrible. It could be in heaven or hell or anywhere in between. And you see, it's the result of all of these things that I've just gone over. So you and your story of the future are entirely dependent upon all of these past events. Well, what can you change about that? Really, the only thing that you can change is the intentions that lead to the actions and that, that make the inference. If your past stories make the present story be one of uh, of, uh, anger and hatred, you can embrace that. And that will assure that your future stories will also be ones of anger and hatred. Or, if somewhere along the line, amongst your mental formations, you have accumulated some wisdom and that wisdom can be brought to bear in the moment and say, this is not a good thing. I don't want to perpetuate this. Then you can generate a different kind of intention with a different kind of actions. And in that moment, it may not necessarily totally change all the future stories that have already been influenced by your past, by these past moments of experience. But you can just keep on that process of changing, and eventually it will change them all. And that is that is the practice of, of, of virtue, uh, love and kindness, compassion, generosity, patience. Uh, and if you if you practice those, then you change your mental formations, which means you change who you are in the future in terms of these five aggregates. And of course, you're going to change the kind of situations you find yourself in and the kind of things that you find happening to you in the future. And that is what we call uh, karma. Karma means action in uh, Sanskrit. 
but the, and it had a previous meaning uh, at the time of the Buddha amongst the uh, Brahmanical tradition, which is what your actions, especially ritual actions, but also all of the actions of a person, if they acted according to their caste status and their duties and responsibilities, whether they're family persons or whether they were farmers or whether they're kings or warriors or whatever it was that their role in society, their actions that they did was believed to produce um, directly the circumstances of their future reincarnation. And so it was very important that all rituals be done exactly the right way and that all individuals try to live their life uh, according to these actions so that they, they would they would determine a beneficial future for themselves. The Buddha took that popular belief and modified it. He said, when I say action, what I mean is intention. Because you see bhikkhus, every action is only the result of intention. And it is the intentions that determine who you are. And it is the intentions that determine your future experience. And so he took the Brahmanical idea of karma and he applied it to the working of the five aggregates and what's called dependent origination, which I slipped in there on you without identifying. But when I said that when you have an experience, your mental formations cause you to uh, consolidate and, and, and solidify this idea of yourself and this object and it is the cause of your pleasure and then generate a craving to have more of that pleasure and therefore you do something. That's actually what's called dependent origination. And at every moment of your experience, this process of dependent origination unfolds and determines the next moment and the next and the next. So Buddha took this idea of karma and he applied it to this understanding and said, these five aggregates, it is within these five aggregates that we find the arising of the intentions that are in fact karma and will in fact determine the, uh, the future. What you experience now is the fruit of your past karma, your past intentions. Because everything else unfolded out of those intentions. What you experience now is fruit of your past intentions, your past karma. So own your karma. Accept your karma. It is yours. What you're experiencing now, this is your fruit. You planted it, you nurtured it, you watered it, you fertilized it, and now you've got it. This is your fruit. What you experience in the... In, but in this moment, you also will generate new intentions. And what you experience in the future will be the result of those intentions that arise now. So those are the seeds that you will that you will nurture and that will later come into flowering. So there is not one story, there's many stories, but in the story of the moment sets the plot for the future stories. Thank you.
Yes. What, what is more important, actuality or reality? Which are uh, the it's two? Important. Yeah, which is more important? Which and which? Actuality or reality? Actuality, actuality or reality? That's interesting because what do you mean by actuality? <laughs> and what do you mean by reality? Yeah. Well, I mean, you could be, you, you, it sounds as though, in the sense that you're using actuality and reality, is that they are two different things. Yeah. Okay. Because something actual cannot be real. Oh, so, okay, so the experience that you're having and your perception might not correspond to something that uh, exists separately from your mind. Is that what, that's the idea? Yes. That's a, you see, that's a very good question, a very important question. And it's one that uh, Buddhism spends a lot of time addressing. Because what we live in is what we experience, right? And what I believe to be true is my, my reality, even if it's not the, uh, the reality for other people, even if it's not the reality for anybody else at all. Right? Now, when we examine this, what we'll see is, okay, there's an assumption here that there, things really exist in a particular way. And they would be that way even if we didn't exist, right? Do you not assume that? Yeah, that, that there is a universe out there that is real, that exists, and it has nothing to do with you. That if you were never born, it would still be there. And when you die, it will still be there. Is that correct? Okay, and this is this is our natural way of viewing things. And the interesting thing when you examine this carefully is indeed there may be something, you know, out there that was there before you were and that will be after you are. But you will never know. All you will know is your own experience. But what we do is that there is a consensual reality. We have each have our own personal reality. And we can see that that that's really all of us can have. You know, whatever our mental formations project, that's the perception that we have and that's the experience we have in the moment. And it can't be anything other than that. But when somebody in the room here is talking about the giraffe on the porch, and the rest of us don't see any giraffe on the porch, then we say, 
uh, that giraffe does not exist. It's only in your mind. Or there are all kinds of things that we have consensual agreement to. So we each live in our own reality, but there is also a consensual reality. There are those things that to the degree we're able to communicate with each other in whatever way, not just words, but all of the ways we communicate with each other, there are those those things that we in our communication agree upon. But those still don't really correspond to something that exists external to us all and independently of us all. We each live in our own internal reality and our our individual realities collectively overlap. You know, and we agree on certain things. But it's still something that that is only the product of the mind. So... What is more important? Some unknown something that may be out there that we can never quite truly know the nature of or the reality that we are experiencing. What would be your answer? Wouldn't you agree it's the reality that you're experiencing? That's right. Nothing stable. Everything's changing. That, that's the one yes, thing that we, we know. Are, yes, we're not in the same place when we came. Yeah. Everything is moving. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Everything is. That's right. Everything is constantly changing. There is nothing but change. When we all get together and we try to refine our consensual reality. This is what science does. Science is a method of saying, well, your reality seems to say that that this is this way and that's that way. You know, and so science is a way of building consensual reality in a careful way. And the rule of science is that, that no matter who does the experiment, they should come up with the same result. That's, that's the idea. So it takes us out of this realm of, of complete personal subjectivity and into the realm of consensual reality. So we all agree that you know this has certain characteristics. We pass it around. And that's what science does. And science has tried to identify, well, what, what is the true nature of what lies behind our consensual reality? And it keeps refining it, and the more it refines it, the more it finds that it isn't the way it appears to any of us. But any of us, all of us, no matter who it is, if we use the same scientific instruments, we'll come to the same conclusion, which is that although we all agree this is solid, and we have an idea of what solid means, that in fact it's 99.99999% Empty space. <laughs> and then we say, what's that? It's made from a tone. Made from a tone. Yeah, made from a tone. That's right. It's made from a tone and a feel. I have a feel. Huh? And I have a tone. It's 
returns and, the and, vibration. And so in my mind, that thing is made. And we can all have, we can all enjoy a similar sensory experience of this object, and then we can talk about it being similar. But so what we find when we look at this carefully is that the simplistic view of, of there is a reality that exists external to us, and then there are those things, and, and, and there are those things that exist only in our mind but don't exist external to us. We find that's really that's a very simplistic and primitive and not very accurate thing, an accurate way of looking at things. Because the next question will be how we can change. Because the problem is the mind change. Well, that's the that is that's the fundamental thing about this. If if the external reality that I'm experiencing is real and fixed from its own side, then I have very little hope of changing it, right? And that's the way we normally regard things. And our life is a struggle to try to change things as much as we can. I can't change the world, but you know, I'm going to do whatever I can to make myself feel good right now. There's some things I can do right now to change my experience. And so our life consists of this frustration of not really being able to have any control over this universe. And if we feel that it is an external universe that is separate from us, that is controlling our experience and our happiness, then it's a fairly hopeless situation. We could hope, well, maybe there's some other being way more powerful than we are that can change this outside stuff. You know, We can fantasize. Okay, maybe there's somebody who has the ability that when it's too cold, they can make it warm. You know, uh, they can make the dead rise and walk. You know, so so that someone someone that we love is not lost to us forever. That they can part the sea so that we can walk across. And Pharaoh's uh, armies won't get us. And you know, it'd be nice if there were a being that had the power to change this externally real stuff, since we don't have the power. But unfortunately, we don't find that. Some, some, some people, they pretend. Some people pretend, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, when someone has a... a, a has a... I, I'm not sure what the word is, whether it's knowledge or... It's not perception. When some someone has a realization of non-self, you know, that the self isn't contained in any of these things, at that time, is there an awareness of the space between <laughs> the atoms, you know, the empty space? And is that why somebody like Deepama could just walk through walls? She did. That's what I hear. <laughs> Sai Baba did too? Yeah. <laughs> it must have something to do with the realization of all that empty space there. Just say, okay, we're just going to avoid the atoms and walk right through. Anyway. <laughs> well, it, it is and it isn't. The, the, the assumption that there's all these atoms that need to be avoided, uh, that's, that's empty too. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is it? I've been, I've been noticing lately, you know, walking, walking, well, 
yesterday I went to the Zen Center and, and they walk around in a, you know, in a circle. They walk in between sits and they walk around in a circle. And I noticed that different people have different densities of shadows because the light was coming in. And some people had hardly any shadow and some people had a really dense shadow. And I thought, well, maybe that has something to do with it atoms or with the degree of selflessness or what or was that just perception playing a trick where 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 were those shadows on the wall oh they weren't near mine (laughs) (laughs) no they were on the wall (laughs) okay where was the wall <laughs> the wall was under the roof and above the floor. And the roof and the floor? None of this was in your mind. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. There, there is something that is responsible for us having the particular sensory experiences we do that we would call uh, roof and floor and wall and shadow. Uh, whatever that happens to be the roof and the floor and the wall and the shadow themselves exist in our mind we experience the sensory experiences whatever caused those sensory experiences to come into being and then from that the mind created the rest of it so when you're looking at the shadow on the wall that's all happening in your mind. So my mind made some denser and some more diaphanous? I that's, don't what, that's what you just told me. It, was my, it wasn't my mind. How do you know? Well, see, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could, what, you, what you might have said to me was, oh, okay, my mind made some shadows denser and others more diaphanous. But it only did that because the sensory experience that registered on my mind had different quality. And so, okay, that's true. And as to, we can then, you and I can proceed to speculate about what caused your uh, sensory experience to vary in that way. And one possibility is that we could say that whatever the, the whatever the untouchable externally existent reality that we project as you see we're projecting that because you've had dreams where you saw things like that but uh, as far as you know there wasn't anything out there that was responsible for those sensations right right but if, if we try to figure out the answer to this question, the first thing we have to assume is, okay, this is not like a dream. And there's something, so something caused you to have visual sensations that corresponded to denser and less dense. Well, that's good, okay. Uh, and, okay, how is this different from a dream? Because in a dream, didn't something cause you to have... If, if you dreamed the difference in the shadows, then we would have said the same thing. Well, in my dream, well, what caused me to dream that some of the shadows were darker than others? 
you just simply don't know the answer. No. You don't know what it is in your dream, but because it was a dream, you feel really comfortable in saying, I don't know what it is, but it had to have been some part of my mind because I was in bed and my eyes were closed. But this time, I was awake and I was in the Zen meditation center. And so, uh, it wasn't my mind. Well, the fact is that in either case, you don't know in either case what the cause was. Well, I thought maybe you would know. <laughs> oh, I wasn't even there. <laughs> okay. I think that some people have different sensory perception. Mm-hmm. Some people are more finely tuned to perceiving things. But you know what? If you if you believed that. If, if you drew the conclusion that the reason some shadows were finer is that those were individuals that were more, uh, they were less dense because they were more spiritual in nature and more, more selfless and more highly evolved, then the result of that would be that at least until such time as something happened to persuade you differently, you would live in a reality where some people were more spiritually refined than others. Not necessarily. You just might see that it's different. And you might just see that, okay, and you might interpret it differently. You might say, do you just live in a reality where there's different kinds of people with different kinds of shadows? Closer to death, maybe, you know? Maybe that's it. Some are closer to death. Yeah. You can interpret it all kinds of different ways. But where is all this interpreting coming from? The mind. Yeah, and how and, and some interpretations might make you feel good and happy and some might make you feel less happy. And so, okay, I'm going to rephrase the whole question. Okay. Is there any uh, external, visible, or to any of the senses, the consciousness, um, uh, manifestation of the quality of selflessness in another being? Any external manifestation? Yeah, like if you look at somebody and is there a way you could say, boy, that person's really beyond self, selfless, without knowing anything about their actions or hearing them speak, is there a visual huh, consciousness? There is, yeah. But it's not necessarily something that... Uh, we can, when we start attaching the belief in an, an externality that is absolute in itself and that we're perceiving that, we have no grounds for doing that. But on the other hand, absolutely, you know, the question, are there some people who can detect this difference in other people? And the answer is yes. But not everybody can. And it won't happen in the same way. There are two, the story of the Buddha when he became enlightened met two different people. One he met was another uh, fellow uh, spiritual practitioner, uh, also a sannyasin withdrawn from society. Uh, 
who belong to a different uh, to, to another school of teaching <clears throat> and when he met him on the road and recognized the Buddha as also a, uh, a sannyasin because of his dress and everything he stopped and chatted and he said who's your teacher who do you follow what is their doctrine blah 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 and the Buddha said uh, I don't have a I don't have a teacher uh, I am uh, fully awakened and this person couldn't see that at all and it looked like he said well good for you see you around and walked off then there was another person who even before he saw the Buddha saw the Buddha's footprints in the road and somehow sensed from that I mean what the sutra says is that he saw a thousand spoke wheel in, in the footprint whether he did or not he saw even from the footprints something that made him think that this person was different so he hurried to catch up with the Buddha and he as, as soon as he saw him he had the same experience. This person's really different. And so he said to him, Who are you, sir? Are you a god? Are you an angel? Are you this kind of being? Are you that kind of being? And, and, and for each one, the Buddha replied, No. He said, Are you are you a, a, a human being? The Buddha said, No, as well. And he said, Well, then what are you? And he answered, I'm awake. But the point of these two stories is that to some it was completely obvious and to some it was they couldn't they couldn't recognize it even when they stood face to face with the Buddha and he told them that he was awakened so yes people can see this some people can see this and other people if it were the same kind of thing you know I, everybody can agree if somebody uh, is taller or shorter has black hair or blonde hair I mean there's things like that that are obvious. This is something that's not universally obvious. How is it detected? It's probably not detected by, no matter how it may be experienced, maybe somebody sees auras, or maybe somebody sees a difference in shadows. Maybe that's how subjectively they experience knowing the difference. That doesn't matter, but that doesn't mean that everyone else will see the auras, or that everyone else will see a difference in shadows. Yeah. Um, I, I just had a, a question or thought. We had talked about this a little bit uh, last night. And it's the point that the Buddha became enlightened. And at that point right there, it, it seems like then there was no, the realization that there were no stories or, or the need for story-making ended. That's right. That we make stories, which also is without the story there is no self to see one um, but from that position of awareness awareness is not the right term but it's the only thing I can think of from that place of awareness somehow the Buddha stepped back into this story making arena yes but it, 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 it also seems like at the same time was able to hold um, the enlightenment awareness. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't really fit. I mean, it doesn't really exist <laughs> here in a way. So, but yet it happened. 
and you know, I try to figure these things out, but I realize that, that you really can't. And, and I think you were alluding to that earlier. At, uh, at the point of that uh, enlightenment, there's something there that's, that's unknowable, at least from this perspective. That's right. And, you know, I think a little bit about it in Native American thought called the Great Mystery. It's called which? The Great Mystery. The Great Mystery, or the, yeah. the, the unknown. You can't know that. And if, if one is, is trying to focus on knowing, you go crazy because it's, mm-hmm. it's annoying. Um, which is why the Buddha would answer, I'm not any of these things. I'm not human. I'm not, I'm not conscious. I'm not... There's nothing you could think of in a hand. That's right. But yet, but yet, it was that awareness was there. Mm-hmm. So, so, so on, on one hand, the awareness is there in something that we're perceiving as a self, but there is no self there. Even, exactly. Even, even that's being, even that's being talked to. Exactly. And um, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm just thinking. <laughs> what, what you're saying yeah. is absolutely um, right on. So, in, so in a sense. Um, what even maintains Buddhist Buddha awareness is our story. From our perspective, I mean, from our perspective, it, it, that's right. excluding the unknowable, which we can't know. Um, so all of that that's happened way back then is right now. What it means it's there right now. Nothing's nothing's changed. It's here. Um, but, but, but quite how I, how I could put my finger on that as a, 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 a self, I mean, I think of myself as a self, it's very difficult. And so we have all of these, these ways to guide us. But even, even if I'm looking at all the different steps and different things, those things in themselves anchor me into myself almost. I mean, I can, if I allow it to. So I'm, I'm thinking, well, how, how, how do I follow the, the path um, without without anchoring into the self? I mean, really without anchoring into the self. I mean, you know, here are these concepts. Here's my practice. And I'm relating it always back to the very thing I'm, I'm realizing does not really exist. Right. And, and so I think, okay, well, I can I can understand that. I mean, I think I have a sense. I can understand that. I can understand there's the unknowable. But how in the world do I get beyond it? I mean, how? Well, how? Well, it's not even that. like, what is the feeling or the attitude or you know, do I stand on my head? Or, you know, what do I do? And all I come up with, I do nothing. So, what does that feel like? <laughs> anyway, these are these are not nothing to really be answered. But that's just, I'm, just, I'm just kind of expressing, I guess, where I am right now. These are very good thoughts. You're, you're, this is a very good exploration that you're doing, and it's very appropriate. Uh, continue. With it. Let me just point out a few things to you that we have to start from where we are. And where we are is, uh, it's the story of the moment. And part of that story is there, uh, part of that story, and a really important part of that story, 
is me, I, the self. So that's where that's where you start from. If you recognize once you recognize the nature of it, and once you recognize that you can influence it, you can change the story. And the story can start moving in the direction of ultimately getting beyond the story. Right? And so that's what you do. The Buddha, when he sat down, when he said, enough of this, I'm sitting down, I'm going to meditate, I'm, I'm not getting up, uh, I'll either die, or I'm going to get this sorted out once and for all. And so he sat down, and he proceeded to meditate. He, he prepared his mind. And then, and the, uh, uh, the first thing that he did is recognize that this is that all he had ever been was this sequence of stories, one story after another after another. That's all there was, was just these stories that his mind had created. And then he further reflected and he realized that it wasn't just him, that every sentient being did this, that this is the nature of sentient beings is that to the extent that they have a mind, the mind is inventing the story of who they are. And that and that story of the moment is dependent upon the stories of the past. Then further he understood the what took place in the mind, the specific events that took place in the mind that caused that to happen. That's what we call dependent origination. And then he said, well, so how do we undo this? So he worked his way back through dependent origination going the other way. Dependent origination says, if this is, then that is. And so he said, okay, if this, uh, if this is not, then that is not. And if this doesn't happen, without this, this can't be, cannot be. And he worked his way backward. And he saw that the basis of his mind continuously creating the stories was craving, attachment. That in every moment, the craving and attachment arose, and so the mind created a new story. Okay, now, at this point, we've moved already through two important levels. First, if the external world exists out there independently of us, the way it seems to be to us, and completely out of our control, and if we exist in here and separately from us the way it seems to, and if our happiness and unhappiness depends on what happens to the self uh, from this world outside, Boy, are we in trouble. That's a bad situation. But then we discover that, well, in fact, this is all stories generated by my mind. And now that I see how my mind generates the stories, I realize that my happiness and unhappiness arise from in here, not out there, on the basis of the stories I make up about what seems to happen out there. And that if I can understand how my mind makes up the stories, then at least I can cause it to make up better stories. 
that's a breakthrough. That's an improvement. But in what the Buddha came to in the middle of the night was the recognition that there may be there may be something even better than that. If he could interrupt the arising of craving, he could break the process of story making and discover what really lies behind the stories. Because the stories seem so real that the only way to really break through is to get the mind to stop making up the stories long enough to have an actual experience of what lies behind this. He was able to do this. And we can all do this. I mean, all of the practices that we do are just trying to get to the place to make the mind stop, to make the mind-created world stop just long enough to experience a reality that lies beyond that. And when we do, then, then we see there is no self. And that all of this that's generated is empty. Of course, we come back into the world of stories. But we're not going to forget that now it's different. We're back in the world of stories, but we know that we know that this self is just a part of the story. It's just a character in a movie or a novel that our mind is creating. So this totally changes the nature of our experience, uh, and, and this is quite wonderful. Now, a Buddha is somebody who not only can dwell in the world of stories, but can, but also always knows the truth that lies behind the stories. The emptiness, the, 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 na- the true nature of reality that lies behind the stories that the mind makes up. And, uh, and, and that is the, the nature of this ultimate realization. But uh, this doesn't involve a fundamental change in the nature of the person who becomes a Buddha. You see, nothing's changed except that uh, what was what was already there becomes known. Even the knowing is the same. You see, the knowing that we only experience as the knowing of visual stimuli, or the knowing of auditory stimuli, or the knowing of tactile stimuli. That is vijnana. That is dualistic knowing. And we look at that and consciousness, we always find it with an object. Because that is what our mind does. It always creates an object and divides consciousness into the knower and the known. But the knowing that knows the true nature of reality is exactly the same, the same knowing. It's not something different that's acquired or, or created, or it's just something that's always there that is realized when the mind no longer splits it in two and, and makes up a story and, a, uh, and somebody to watch the story, observe the story. But we don't even need to worry about becoming Buddhists. We're going to be way ahead. We're going to be way ahead if we just recognize that uh, the, that our life is all of these stories, and that we can 
make much better stories. That's the first stage. That's that's wonderful. That's important. And we have to do that before we can do any of the rest. Because otherwise, we remain immersed in our nightmares. Our stories can be nightmarish, or they can be just the opposite. And when they're the, the opposite, uh, then it frees us up to try to go to the, to the next level. But also, it, it eliminates from the mind all of this attachment to craving that is the cause of the whole problem. So, and that's what that's what that's what's taught as the the, the dharma of the uh, of those of the least capability is that they can uh, at, uh, at this lowest level they can at least recognize that if they change their attitudes, if they change their behavior, if they practice generosity, virtue, patience, loving kindness, compassion, that they can change their life and the world they live in for the better. But then you, you move beyond that. If you, can, if you can break the hold that the belief in the self and the belief in the reality of these things has on you, then you've reached a whole new level of freedom even though you still experience the stories there's a whole difference between believing the movie is reality and knowing that it's a movie especially when you know that you can play a role in editing and, and uh, producing the movie but I keep wondering is the Buddha a story Hmm? Is the Buddha a story? <laughs> of course the Buddha is a story. And everything is a story. So eventually... When you're in the realm of stories, you cannot have... You know, ultimate reality is outside the realm of stories. So in the ultimate reality, there would be no Buddha as a Buddha, you know, as a idea of a Buddha. That's right. right. All of the ideas that you might have of a Buddha are ideas, and they can only exist in the realm of ideas. And these stories really serve to point the way in different directions. I mean, the world is made of stories, and it's really rich, and I guess... As long as we're in it, we have to do the best we yeah. can with the story. So learning to edit your own story is really nice and, you know, <laughs> and tell stories, tell stories too. Good. So you you can practice it, uh, practice it at the, at the first level while you're trying to achieve the second level. And once you see shape the second level, you practice it yet while you're trying to achieve the third level, which is to actually become a Buddha yourself. But once you've achieved that second level where you've broken the attachment and the belief to uh, the self and external reality, you you are now you're no longer trapped by the story. You've achieved uh, a very significant level of liberation and freedom and wisdom. Yeah. Very quickly, because I, I know we're time limited. 
So if you were in the presence of a person who's going through enormous trauma, yeah. upset, angry, devastated, uh, drug-induced, any of all of those things. So if you were if you were in the presence of a person like this, instead of getting really caught up in the drama and the pathos of this, one could calmly look at them yes. and see that in this moment they are going through this internal story. Right. And be able to almost pierce the veil of mm -hmm. that and be calm in the midst of this storm mm -hmm. and deal with it in an entirely different way. Because it, in, 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 in that way, it become, the drama becomes beautiful, mm -hmm. even. And compassion becomes the result yes. of, of viewing all this. I mean, it completely shifts mm -hmm. how That's one right. is in the presence of something. That's right. Compassion becomes pure, but also being compassion, uh, 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 yeah, being compassion. Being compassion doesn't mean suffering for the other person. Right. And one example that's occurred to me is some people often, you know, you start talking about that, and you start to, you know, it's like, uh, uh, they start to worry. I, I know one time somebody said, well, it seems inhuman, that, you know, how, how could you see the suffering of others and, 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 and not suffer because of it. But, so I, I thought about that and an example occurred to me that sort of illustrates the difference. A mother has compassion for a child. If the child is in, in, indeed hurting and crying because of that, then the mother feels great compassion for the for the pain of the child and probably feels the pain herself, right? I don't believe that. Well? <laughs> I mean, she might feel um, compassion and sympathy for the pain, but she doesn't necessarily feel the pain. No, doesn't feel it. She, let's put it this way, she feels pain herself as okay. a result of okay. the child's pain. But the same compassionate mother the child is just as upset and crying just as hard, but there's really nothing wrong. And so the mother is still just as concerned with comforting the child, but at the same time has a smile on her face and shakes her head. And, you know, there's, there's no pain there because... In, in it's not the identified. And that's because the difference is that the mother knows that... The illusory nature of the source of the upset of, of the child. So, if the child burned her hand on something, then the mother knows that oh, that's you know, it's going to hurt for a long time and blisters and blah blah blah. So, the mother feels pain on behalf of the child. But if it's just an illusion in the mind of the child, instead of feeling the pain, the mother comforts the child, but at the same time is smiling and laughing because, you know, right? That, that's kind of a example that comes to my mind. So yes, you, the compassion for the suffering of others is the same. But the, real, the recognition 
that it is a story and that there's one that they created themselves puts a completely different spin on it. I don't know how well that example works. It's the best, best you know, one. Um, yeah. like there's the whole thing of mudita, you know, sympathetic joy. When mm-hmm. somebody's experiencing joy, you learn to, you can learn or change your story enough to feel joy at their joy and that really makes yeah. you feel good rather than jealousy which might come up as um, might come up and you can you can let go of the jealousy at a certain right. point that's right um, but there's but it's like somebody's feeling great pain and your heart opens to the pain and quivers but you don't take the pain on you don't right. feel yeah. at least this is my understanding yeah. you don't feel the pain of the other person it's like that saying oh I feel your pain no that's not about know? feeling your pain and it's not about <laughs> that at all you know so it's kind of I don't know I hadn't thought about that those two things are different. The two things, yes. Compassion and sympathetic joy are different. Compassion and sympathy, even uh, uh, the Western definitions distinguish when you have sympathy for somebody else, is you're feeling their pain. But compassion does not mean that you're feeling their pain. Uh, so there's that distinction. And sympathetic joy is where you are experiencing joy because of the other person's good fortune. The other person's joy and happiness, and that's that's why uh, uh, Shanti Deva said that uh, all the suffering in the world is due to our trying to make ourselves happy, but all of the true happiness in the world is due to making others happy. Because sympathetic joy is a reality. When you make others happy, it makes you feel good. Or even if you just take satisfaction in other people's successes uh, and their own happiness, it makes you feel good. Uh, I've talked a lot. We came here to meditate. I'm sorry. But it was such a good topic. <laughs>